couple of uh, simple questions for you. Uh, what is truth? Is there a God? How can I know God? And what does it mean to be human? How can I deal with guilt and shame? You see, modern people today are not asking the wrong questions, but they may struggle to find meaningful answers. You see, the bankruptcy of this cultural moment we're in, what's called a postmodern culture, which means that the culture primarily derives meaning from non-traditional or uh, non-institutional sources, is that culture today teaches that you can find all the answers to the deep questions about life, and you can find all the answers you're looking for, all the meaning you need, and all the satisfaction that you long for if you just looked within yourself. So why then is the state of our world filled with self-help social media gurus and more fad diets and lifestyle trends than we could ever imagine to keep up with? And simultaneously, there are all-time spikes in anxiety and depression. And society just seems to continue to spiral downward when it comes to how do we deal with the burdens of life. We're not finding peace from our problems. No, we are being overwhelmed with solutions. The answer to the problem, though, is quite simple. We cannot free ourselves. We can't free ourselves from guilt and anxiety, from depression, from the burdens of life, from the painful reality, friend, that life takes no prisoners. The question is, What do you do when you've gone 10 rounds with life? 10 rounds with yourself. 10 rounds with the heavyweight champion guilt and shame, and you feel like you are just beaten into a pulp, and friend, you have nowhere left to go. What do you do then? I keep waiting for the TikTok guru video on that answer. The Bible answers this question by showing us The way to freedom is acknowledgement and agreement with your own failure. This morning we'll look at this in parts of 1 John chapter 1 and 2, and we'll do so through the lens of worship. And what we saw uh, last week about worship is that worship is encountering the presence of God. So the question for us this morning is, how can guilty and burdened people worship a holy and perfect God. Martin Luther, the German Protestant reformer, he said that when we read the Bible, the most important distinction we need to see is between two categories, what he called two words. God's commands and God's promises. Or the law, what God requires of us, and the gospel, what God has done for us. Each week in the beginning section of our worship service, there's a reading of God's law, confession of sin, and the proclamation of the gospel for you. We do this because the way to freedom is through acknowledgement of our own failure and seeing Christ as the solution. So this morning we'll look at these two words of God, the word of the law, the word of the gospel, and we'll end with a quick response to this. 
So beginning in verse 5, if you're following along, notice in verse 5 how John begins. John, who was one of Jesus' disciples, starts by establishing the authority of his message on the authority of Jesus as the Lord of life. He says, this is the message that we have heard from him, Jesus, and proclaim to you, the church. Meaning God himself has revealed John's message to him, the disciples and the apostles, and now that message is being passed down. One observation since we're talking about worship in this series is there is both authority coming from God and historical connectivity here as, it's, as this message is passed down from the witness of the apostles and the ch- witness of the church. The elements of worship that we move through on Sunday are authoritative and historically connected to the witness of the apostles built on the authority of God's revelation. And John shows what is revealed to us is that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Two quick things on this. John begins with God. Why? All worship must begin with the true God. Second, there is no darkness in God at all. God is perfectly holy, meaning he is morally perfect. He is truth. There is no confusion or contradiction or bad intentions in him. He is is perfectly good. There is no corruption or stain that infects him. So we begin with God's word in our worship as he calls us to worship him. And we begin with worshiping God as the true God. Notice, though, that there's a juxtaposition in verses 5 and 6. It says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Notice here, there is no union between light and dark. John is saying that God is light and where there is light, darkness is completely overcome by it. And if we say that we know God and have fellowship, that's oneness, togetherness, connectedness with God, union with him, and we walk in darkness, then we actually oppose God's very own nature. In other words, friends, we are kidding ourselves if we say that we can live our lives contrary to God's own nature and be in a relationship with him. Something you must see in this text, is that John uses this word fellowship, that's koinonia in the Greek, in two ways. First, fellowship with God, that union with God, that togetherness, it means to know God. But second, it means to be in a relationship with God. He uses this word fellowship like we would talk about a marriage. In a marriage, there's this oneness, togetherness, as two become one. A marriage is not merely obtaining information about someone. It's not merely a legal process either, a contractual agreement. See, if I just had information about my wife, I knew where she was born, I knew how tall she was, um, but that's all I kind of knew about her, and I didn't have any connectivity with her, that wouldn't be a very healthy marriage, because marriage isn't merely informational, because it's relationship between her and me. 
On the opposite end, if I didn't know anything about her, I wouldn't actually be able to be in a meaningful relationship with her. How could I be? I don't know anything about her, right? People ask me, where's your wife from? And I said, Kentucky? And she goes, no, I'm not. They'd be like, dude, this is your wife. Don't you know her? How could you possibly be in a relationship with someone you don't know anything about? You see, fellowship is both knowledge and relationship. And this is key to Christianity. That our knowledge of God leads to our love of God. And this is the essence of our relationship with him. But John says that the fellowship is disrupted when we walk in darkness. In other words, we become contrary to God's nature because light and darkness don't exist together. There is no fellowship between light and darkness. Notice verses 6, 8, and 10 are all descriptions of this non-fellowship. I'll read them. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. What I'm getting to is the first word, the word of the law. Let's look at that. John is saying to be in fellowship with God is to know first that he is holy and that his law reflects that he is holy. Second, the law reveals our sin to us. It reveals to us our unholiness. So first, the law reflects that God is holy. Notice verse 8 says, if we say we have no sin, that's singular, and verse 10, if we say we have not sinned or committed acts of sin, notice this. I want you to see this because John is saying that we have both a sinful nature The very being of who we are is corrupted by sin. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And that we commit sins out of that corrupted nature. In other words, there is no one who can claim to be unstained by the impurity of sin. Two things to understand about this. First, you must see God's utter holiness. God's utter holiness, his light, exposes all of the darkness within you and I, and it leaves us nowhere to hide. Second, we understand that, understand that God's law is a requirement to be holy as God is holy. You must see this. Without this, we will always downplay the seriousness and the severity of our sins. See, Richard Lovelace, theologian, he points out in his book called Dynamics of of a Spiritual Life, he basically says that the precondition to renewal, personal renewal and corporate renewal, is the knowledge that God is holy. Why? Because without knowing God's holiness, you can never come to the end of yourself and see that You don't stand a chance stacking up to him morally. But when we come into the presence of the eternal God, the eternal God who stands above time, who creates galaxies by merely whispering, whose hem of his garment fills the entire throne room of heaven, who overcomes death without hesitation, 
who sees all, knows all, and controls all. John says, you come into the presence of that God and you say, you stand up to him, you are a liar. If you think that your darkness will come into contact with the Almighty and that you won't be struck dead without him skipping a beat. You see, the law of God reflects God's utter holiness. The second thing the law does, the law reveals our sin to us. Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul, he says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. The law reveals to us what God hates because it is contrary to the way he's designed and ordered the universe to be. The law is a mirror being held up to you and to me to show us where we don't stack up, to point out all of our blemishes. And the law also says that not only do your outward actions need to meet God's requirements perfectly, but that your very intentions need to live up to God's perfect law and the demands of the law as well. Paul says earlier in Romans that this leaves no one, no one with excuse for their sin standing before a holy God. Friends, there is nowhere to hide. One of my mentors, he says it like this, in the end, God will assign one of two grades, zero or 100. He does not grade on the curve and he will not hear our excuses. Those who have perfectly lived the law in thought, word, and deed will be counted as righteous. Others like myself will be utterly doomed. Checkmate. You see, the law of God is 120 proof, straight, astringent holiness of God. It hears no excuse. It takes no prisoners. It reveals plain and simple where you do not stack up. All the way down to our innermost thoughts and intentions. And the worst part... The very worst part, if you thought it couldn't get any worse, is that the law leaves you nothing but damned to hell from conception till your deathbed. The Bible says that the guilty will receive the justice they deserve for their wrongdoing. How? How do we deal with this guilt? How do we come into the presence of a holy God? How do we go from damned to saved? How do we go from death to life? This is the problem. What's the solution? Well, the solution is the word of the gospel. The second thing. Someone asked me this week, um, how should I read the Bible? And my answer is always the same, is that you can only read the Bible correctly one way. To see it as a story of rescue. If you miss this, you miss Christianity altogether. If you struggle to understand what is Christianity really about, read the Bible as a story of rescue. The Bible is a story of a holy God who creates everything and designs it all as good. He orders it according to his good design. And after rejecting God's commandments, humanity distorts our relationship, our fellowship with Him, our fellowship with one another, and our fellowship with creation. 
And friend, that's only the first three chapters of the Bible. The next 1,186 chapters are about God coming to rescue humanity. You see, verses 7, 9, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. These are the words of promise. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So I'm not going to be able to unpack all of this, unfortunately, but... I'll quickly move through what this means for us. This is the second word. This is the better word. This is the word of the gospel, the good news. John says that if we see our sin, if we look in the mirror and see the sin before a holy God, and we agree, we confess, that's all that confess means, we agree and acknowledge it. And we agree that we've broken God's holy law and we stand utterly damned before Him, that we've committed cosmic treason against Him. John says that we walk in the truth because we know that guilt is the problem and the Gospel is the solution. And we know it's not within us. We know it's outside of us. We can now stand in a relationship with God. We can have fellowship with Him and with one another again and have connectivity to the witness of the apostles and with God's very own people. We have fellowship with Him and with His people through the word of the gospel. This means that we are made right with God. And that, friend, you can belong. You can really belong. Do you struggle to belong? The gospel is the solution. Because of the blood of Jesus, His Son, It cleanses you from all of your sin. In other words, Jesus, God in the flesh, come in our likeness. He takes our place as our substitute. He receives the punishment that you and I deserve for our cosmic treason against God. He lives perfectly before God, keeping all of His commandments, being perfectly holy His whole life. He washes away with His blood spill all of our impurities and He makes you and I clean before God. His blood satisfies God's justice so that God no longer remembers His anger towards us, but He only remembers His covenant faithfulness, His love promised for us in Christ. Friend, Jesus makes the impure pure. He makes the unclean clean. He makes the un righteous, righteous, by giving to us his own merits. He deals with our guilt because he took it on as his own. We were carrying a pack that was just too too heavy to carry, and Jesus takes it on for us. That means that God needed payment 
for sin, to satisfy justice, to satisfy his anger and wrath towards sin, the imperfections. Hebrews chapter 9 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You see, to extend forgiveness, this is true for you and I with one another as well, to, to extend forgiveness, to forgive wrongdoing, means that, that the forgiver has to absorb what was done wrong. This means that God can't just forget sin because that would mean he's no longer just. No, he requires payment for sin. Friend, Jesus made the payment for you by dying the death that you and I deserve. Chapter 2, 1 and 2, see that it says, if anyone does sin though, John is saying here, the Christian life is now wrestling with, with ourselves. He's kind of playing with that language. The Christian life is wrestling with ourselves. Since the guilt is absorbed by Jesus for you and I, our redeemed self and our sinful self now wrestle in this life as sinner and saint. And the Christian life is marked by three things. First, the Christian life is marked by running to the forgiver for forgiveness. If anyone does sin, he has an advocate, it says. Meaning Jesus continues to be a proxy for you in heaven, to advocate for you in heaven. You see, we were in a courtroom, God is the judge, and we are guilty of infinite accounts of capital crimes against him. And Jesus comes in as our defense attorney. We have like a thousand lawyers in this church. So Jesus comes in as our defense attorney. And he takes the punishment for us, stands in our place, and then he continues to act as your defense before God on our behalf. Second, seek fellowship with God and with others. Jesus delivering us from the punishment of our sin is the gateway into fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. So one practical point on this, some people will see the church and say, the church is a hospital. I actually tend to think of the church as a battlefield triage tent on D-Day. And you might think, man, that's a tough gig. And um, sometimes it can be, but handling people in the tent's not, not the challenge. They know that they're dying. They know that they're bleeding out. They know they have nowhere to go. It's those of you outside of the tent that are the challenge. It's the people losing limbs, bleeding out, being blown to bits, going the wrong way and don't realize it or refuse to see it. And they don't want to come into fellowship with God and they don't want to come in fellowship with fellow sinners and sufferers. Go back to verse 6 and 7 of chapter 1. Friend, don't be a liar. Confess your need. You're in good company. You're amongst failures. Jesus the righteous is your substitute. Three, hold to the promises of God. Now these are the gospel verses here. God promises to forgive when we confess. Christ promises to advocate when we confess. He promises to cleanse us with His blood. He cannot deny Himself. Hold fast to those promises when you've gone ten rounds with life and you just feel like you can't get up any longer. Come to the end of yourself and turn to Christ. Finally, two 
chapter 2, verse 2, Jesus' death is not only for our sin, but the whole world. What does that mean? Those of you who aren't Calvinists are like, aha, I got you. Let me tell you what it means. Jesus' blood is sufficient to cover the sin of the entire world in all of its history. But Jesus' death is not hypothetical. It's it's effective and effectual to obtain what it desires. Jesus did not die for the possibility of salvation, no friend. He died for you. You can take that to to the bank. You can take that to the grave. Jesus' blood is effectual to obtain salvation for you. That's what that means. He is our substitute. He kept God's law perfectly, and he died how you and I should. Friend, you must see the majesty of the gospel. That while we were sinners ungodly, Christ lived and died for us. He lived and kept God's demands when you and I absolutely could not. He died the death that we deserved. He spills His blood and satisfies God's demands. And friends, He cleanses us freely. What is the key to this? The key is to see that the way to freedom from the burden of sin, the burden of the law, is the solution of the Gospel. To see Christ's substitution for you is the solution. The key is to admit, friend, you're a failure! And to rejoice! And be glad and give glory to the Lord who has taken away all your sin. Finally, how does the Christian respond to this? I'll do this in 10 seconds. Give glory to the Lord because you are free. Live as Christ did because you are free. Serve your neighbor because you are free. You are free from needing to earn God's approval now. You are free from the demands of the law. Jesus did it for you, friend. Worship the God who has come to rescue you. And I'm ending with this. My mentor used to say, drill this into people's ear holes. This is what he proclaimed to me, and now I proclaim to you. Let your your guilt be dealt with in Christ this morning by admitting that you are a failure and simply believe in Christ's success for you. He says, Christian failures are going to walk into heaven. Be welcomed into heaven. Leap into heaven like a calf leaping out of its stall, laughing and laughing as if it's all too good to be true. It isn't just that we failures will get in, it's that we will get in like that. You mean it was just Jesus' death for me? That's why I'm here? But of course, that's the point, isn't it? As a believer in Jesus, you are not condemned. No believer in Jesus ever will be. Not a single one. Oh Lord, help us to present ourselves and all of our pursuits as a sacrifice to you that you may peaceably rule and perpetually dwell in us until you gather us to our final heavenly dwelling where there is reserved for us eternal rest and glory because of the work of Jesus for us alone. Through him we pray. Amen. Amen.